There's no special context we need to bear in mind for this psalm, um, save for the fact it was written by David. Psalm 14 is a a quiet meditation, um, even a lamenting meditation, and it's offered by David. And as you'll see when we read it together, um, it really applies to every people in every place of every generation. And so naturally then, it's, it's universal in scope and it's applicable to us today. So with that, let's dive right into Psalm 14. Psalm 14, hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all these evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Thanks be to God for his word. Please pray with me briefly. Father in heaven, we we praise you for this time we have together in your word. And Lord, we simply ask that you would be present here with us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that as we look at this psalm together, that that you would use your word in the way that it needs to be used in each of our hearts. Lord, that you would meet the needs of these people, that you would feed us this morning on your word. So be with us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. My family and I were recently in in Northern Ireland. Um, I'm from Scotland, to be clear, before anyone accuses me of being Irish. We were recently in Northern Ireland attending the wedding of one of my best friends from college. While there, we visited what's one of the um, more famous tourist attractions in the capital city of Belfast, that's the Titanic Museum. This is a museum dedicated to the great ship, the Titanic, and it takes you through the whole journey from the the ship being built in Belfast um, to its tragic end after hitting an iceberg in the North Atlantic. I'm sure many of you know the story. Well, perhaps the most striking and saddest parts of this tour is when you learn of the fact that the captain of the Titanic actually was forewarned about these icebergs. He was told there are icebergs ahead that you need to steer clear of. Despite these warnings, the captain would continue on at speed. He would barely change course, and it would end in tragedy. Psalm 14 is piercing. It presents us with a stark picture of humanity. 
It may be hard to look in the mirror of Psalm 14 for all of us, but because this is our reality, because this does describe us, the Lord graciously warns us of our estate, that we might see our need and therefore turn to him. Captain Smith of the Titanic needed to hear the bad news of the icebergs in order to change course. In denying the truth, in denying his reality, he perished, and many with him. As we dive into Psalm 14 then, let's pray that the Holy Spirit would make us receptive um, to the bad news of our condition that we would then also see the hope in this psalm, the hope present, as it's presented in this psalm, that we would not dismiss the landscape of our souls in the way Captain Smith dismissed the landscape of the North Atlantic. What I want us to really take away today, sorry, from Psalm 14, is a better understanding of our condition as human beings that we might then, in turn, have a better understanding of the nature of the hope we have in God. In order to help us along the way, to give us some hooks to hang our hats on, um, we'll look at it under four headings. The first, folly defined, looking at verse 1. The second, folly surveyed, looking at verses 2 and 3. The third, hope defined, looking at verse 4. And fourth and finally, hope surveyed, looking at verses 5 through 7. That's folly defined, folly surveyed, hope defined, and hope surveyed. First of these, folly defined. Look with me at verse 1. And I'll say at this point, I probably should have said it earlier, it will be helpful to have the text open in front of you as we, as we work through this together. So look with me at verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Well, this opening line of the psalm provides us with a divine definition of folly. Indeed, there is no God could even be the motto of the fool. Spurgeon writes, sin is always folly, and as it is the height of sin to attack the very existence of the Most High, so it is also the greatest imaginable folly. This is particularly clear if we contrast this verse with Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fool does not fear God because he denies the existence of God. And notice in verse 1 how this plays out, how this motto plays out in the life of the fool. It says they're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's an inextricable connection here between the sin of denying God and the sin of committing evil deeds. I think to summarize the problem, intellectual atheism produces the fruit of practical atheism. But I do want us to notice that the issue here is not primarily an intellectual problem. We all know and have known 
extremely intelligent people who would claim this motto for themselves. I studied physics for my undergrad back in Scotland, my postgrad here in the US. And I had some professors with, um, who would probably say themselves, actually. They, they had brains the size of planets. They were incredibly intelligent men and women. And they, and they denied the existence of God. They would claim this motto for themselves. To be called a fool, then, as defined by Psalm 14, is not an intellectual judgment, but a moral judgment. It's not that the fool lacks intellect, it's that he suppresses the truth about God, as Romans 1 teaches us. He exchanges the truth that there is a God for the lie that there is no God, and it's reflected in how he lives. Doesn't it come so naturally to us to live as though this were our motto? Even as believers, isn't it so easy for us to fall into patterns of practical atheism as if there were no God in heaven. I think this shows up in many ways, not just the the big sins, um, but even in our worries, our, 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 our natural worries, our worries about our children, our worries about our jobs, our worries about our retirement. Does, that, does this practical atheism not show up and some of our ambitions, some of our desires, certainly in our pride. Like the Israelites, like David, who wrote the psalm, we so easily forget God and therefore live or can be guilty of living as fools. So the definition, according to the psalm, of a fool or of folly is the denial of God in both word and deed. So having defined this, we can now proceed to take our seats with the psalmist here in the, in the heavenly theater in order that we might discover how widespread this folly is. Our second heading, Folly Surveyed. And we'll be looking at verses 2 and 3. And before we go there, before we read these verses, a reminder, as as I've already said, um, that to to understand our condition or our estate as human beings, we we truly, in in order to understand, sorry, our hope in God, we have to first understand our condition. We have to first understand our estate. Verses 2 and 3 will hone in on the bad news of our condition. Verses 2 and 3 are our icebergs. Um, and, and so what I would ask is just bear with me as we wade through these verses together. And I think as we do that, as we understand and grapple with the bad news, we'll appreciate all the more the nature of the hope we have in the second half of this psalm. So look with me at verses 2. And three, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. 
here, as we said. We seem to have taken our seats in the heavenly theater. Seems as though the Lord has laid out the panorama of the earth and all of humanity before our eyes. Verse 2 says the Lord is looking to see if there are any who seek after him. The Lord is seeking seekers. And, and it's, a, it's a vivid picture, isn't it? It's this picture of the Lord surveying all the earth, looking in every continent, in every nation, in every, in every town, in every home, for just one person who seeks him. And in case we're wondering what it might look like, what that seeker would look like, and John 4, verse 23, tells us this. This is the account of Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. I know you've been working through John recently, so you're probably all famili- very familiar. Verse 23, Jesus says this, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the, and here's what I want us to catch. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father is seeking people to worship him in spirit and truth. So here in our psalm, the image we have of the Lord surveying the earth, looking for just one even, is a picture of the Father seeking worshipers, seeking just one who worships him. And what does verse 3 tell us? that we already saw in verse 1. They have all turned aside. Not some, they have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. It's a stark picture of humanity. And we may be able to get off the hook by saying, well, this must have just been a bad generation, a bad group. Um, but the Apostle Paul makes sure that we can't do that, and he quotes this, that these verses in, in Romans 3, verses 8 through 10, when he's speaking of universal human sinfulness. This corruption, this turning aside from God, this denial of God in the heart of man has been true of every single person since the fall in Genesis 3, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. The default position of the human heart, of our hearts, due to sin, is to deny God. I think this really ought to humble us, that regardless of our position in the world, regardless of our gifts and talents, regardless of our nationality or our our inheritance, we all share in this common estate. We all share this common condition. So Christian, I would ask you, do you ever fall into the trap of thinking that your faith is something that you are ultimately responsible for? That you have some intellectual insight that the unbeliever does not have? Or unbeliever, are you not aware in the recesses of your heart, in the quiet moments, 
that you fall short, that you can't, in fact, go it alone. You see, on our own, the diagnosis is the same for every single one of us. And if this psalm ended here, we'd, we'd be rightly asking ourselves, why after the fall did the Lord not just fold up the creation and return it to nothingness? It would be a hopeless picture of humanity, the humanity of which we are all a part, the humanity of which I am a part, not some other humanity, but us. But praise God, the psalm does not end here. And even in the midst of this picture, this picture of the Lord searching all the earth and not finding a single person to worship him, the psalmist, the Lord, gives us a glimmer of hope. Our third heading, hope defined. Look with me at verse 4. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? At first glance, you may be wondering why in the world I'm suggesting this verse gives us hope. This verse, after all, is telling us the condition of humanity is so bad that evildoers devour God's people as commonly, as readily, as frequently as they eat bread and they ate lots of bread. It was a staple in their diet. So it's saying that this behavior, this consumption, this persecution is normal and regular and frequent. But notice what distinction has been made in this verse. Until this point, we were all fools. We were in one group. We were all fools who did not seek God, and yet here it becomes clear that while we are all born in a state of denying God, we do not all remain there. The psalmist takes this all of humanity and he cuts it in half. He divides humanity into two camps here. There are evildoers and there are the people of God. His basis for this distinction among humanity in this passage cannot be anything in humanity. For he's already said, we all deny God. We've all turned aside from God, that not even one of us seeks God. So how is it that among this group, some can be called God's people, when by default, when by definition, we're all evildoers? Well, if it's not on the basis of an internal righteousness of any human being, it must be on the basis of an external righteousness. I already said that Psalm 14 is quoted in Romans 3, verses 8 through 10, so we'll do well to turn to Romans 3 and look at how the Apostle Paul explains this situation, explains how some can be called God's people. So look with me at Romans 3, and we'll read verses 21 through 25. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction that all of humanity, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Some can be called God's people because they've received a free gift of grace. They've received the external alien righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they've had it applied to their account. Beloved, if you have faith in the Lord Jesus today, this is true of you. When the Father looks upon you, he does not see an evildoer. He does not see a fool. He does not see one who once did not seek him. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus, then the Father sees his beloved child. He sees the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus, of his only begotten Son, when he gazes upon you. He does not see the crimson stains of sin that had marked us all. He sees the white robes of righteousness. You see, in order to rightly understand the nature of the hope we have, we first had to understand our condition, how big a problem we had. The nature of our hope, then, is entirely grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nick picked the the hymn that we'll sing after this perfectly, that our hope is built on nothing less. I think this is particularly important for us to remember for those of us with loved ones who do not know Jesus. I think it's easy for us to fall into despair over them, and I'll be the first to tell you those stories. I, I, I have loved ones that I dearly, dearly wish would come to, wish and pray more appropriately would, would come to know Jesus. And I think when we're in that situation, it's easy to make one of two mistakes. I think, firstly, we can beat ourselves up for their unbelief as though we're in some way responsible. I think, secondly, we can get mad at them for their unbelief as though they're in some way responsible, which obviously there is a level in which that's true. However, both of these mistakes make the same error. They place the initiative in the hands of man. Beloved, our hope for ourselves and for our loved ones is 100% grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what, we sh- what should we do when we're encountered with a situation? We should pray, and we should pray, and we should pray, and we should share the gospel of Jesus Christ at every opportunity. He is the only one. He is the only one who can change a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. So far, then, we've defined folly. We've determined that we are all born in this estate, and we've now defined our hope as being grounded in Jesus entirely. 
as we proceed then to our last point, um, I want us to return to this um, picture of the Lord surveying the earth, surveying humanity, um, to, to refine that picture a little bit more. So our fourth and final point is hope surveyed. Look with me at verses 5 through 7. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Well, in verses 5 and 6 here, we're still looking upon humanity from our seats in the heavenly theater. We still have this bird's eye view. And what we find here are two very different fates. In verse 5, the evildoer is in great terror. He is the one who would shame the plans of the poor. He is the one who exploits and devours God's people as readily as he eats bread. In the very same verses, we see that God is with his people, the generation of the righteous. God's people are a righteous people, as we've said, and that he, God, is their refuge, their place of safety. God's people experience the embrace and the comfort of their God. Notice, though, what this is not saying. If we understand this in light of verse 4, then the picture we have is not one of Christians who have escaped the world and who do not suffer because they are in the arms of God. That is not the picture we have here. Rather, the picture we have of God's people is a picture of a people who experience the scorn of the world, who actually, by virtue of the fact that they are God's people, experience the scorn of the world. God's people experience this scorn knowing that they do not experience it alone, that their God is with them. It's the picture of a child falling over and cutting their knee and running to their mum or dad. And they're still in pain, they're still suffering, but in the embrace of their mother or father, they feel safe. They know everything will be okay. As Christians, we can not only know that God is with us in our trials and persecutions, but that he himself in Christ experienced the sufferings that we experience, and more than that, that he experienced the scorn of humanity in order to redeem his people. I would encourage you then today that if you are experiencing a trial, and so many of us are so much of the time, though we don't necessarily know it, if you're experiencing a trial today, do not believe the lie that you're on your own. Do not believe the lie that this trial is an indicator that God doesn't love you. Beloved, your God is with you in your trials. The psalm is telling us this. 
And if he, the Lord Jesus, did not abandon us in Gethsemane, if he did not abandon us in Gethsemane, but pressed on through the, the, the droplets of blood coming down his head, if he pressed on then to a cross, he will never abandon you. If he did not abandon you then, he will never abandon us. Our God is faithful. He is a refuge. In verse 7, then, we seem to drop out of this heavenly theater back into the earthly arena. And what we find is this heavenly perspective that the psalmist has given us gives God's people on earth great hope. They hope that salvation would come from Zion. Their hope, notice, is not that salvation would come from themselves. It's an external hope. Beloved, salvation has come from Zion in the person of Jesus Christ. And they know, in verse 7, that this salvation will result in restoration and rejoicing. We have a foretaste of this in the first coming of Jesus. We, there's the already but not yet. And, 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 and we can still look forward with, with the psalmist to that great day when we'll experience the fullness of of God's blessing, the fullness of glory when Jesus comes again and claims us for himself. So I think the refined picture of this survey that the Lord is taking, surveying the earthly arena, his searching of every continent, of every nation, every city, every town, and every home, is not actually a picture of the Lord returning empty-handed. It's much more akin to the picture of the Passover in Exodus. You you know the story. You can imagine the Lord passing through the land of Egypt. And for the evildoers, this results in tragedy. This results in death. But for God's people, there is mercy. There is grace. There is life. And as the Lord passes through the land of Egypt, he distinguishes between these two groups, not on the basis of anything in them, not on the basis of anything about them. He distinguishes between these two groups on the basis of the blood of the Lamb. God is a refuge and a deliverer for those marked by the blood of the Lamb. On the last day then, when we will experience this surveying in a, in a more tangible way, we'll see it when the Lord surveys the assembled peoples of every nation and every generation before his throne. He will once again be a refuge and a deliverer for those covered by the blood of the true and last Lamb, Jesus Christ. Beloved, our folly may be great, but the one in whom we hope is greater still. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope we have in Jesus, a hope entirely grounded in Christ and his work 
on the cross in his life, death, and resurrection. Lord, we thank you that you spare us from having to hope in ourselves, which is no hope at all. Lord, be with us as we continue worshiping you this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.